I'm sorry. <laughs> we really like to be happy, don't we? Uh, we've been praising the Lord, and I hope we praise the Lord from our hearts. We really love to be happy, and of course, we come to church to be happy, don't we? Come to church to be happy and, and to be comfortable and to be refreshed and to be sent out dancing. Uh, but we come to church to stand before God, actually. And our God, as we read in John's first letter, in him, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Then, two chapters later, same letter, God is love. God is light. God is love. One of the things that is a challenge about reading these minor prophets is a reminder that our God... God is sovereign over all the nations of the world through all time. And since mankind has fallen into sin, God is constantly being insulted, dismissed, abused, despised, done away with. It's it registers to our minds most clearly when we see how men, and it's only because we're born 2,000 years later and in another country that we might not have been amongst them, <laughs> crucified the one who is the Son of God, who embodied in his, in his earthly life the righteousness, the holiness, and the goodness and mercy and love of God. But he was crucified. God has been suffering that from men ever since mankind first said, I'll do it my way. I don't trust you. And because God is the maker of the universe, there are consequences to that. And the consequences fall on nations as well as individuals. This is what we must take forward from these minor prophets. We must understand that because we live in the 21st century and we're terribly civilized, so we believe, in actual fact, the hatred of one nation for another, for one set of football supporters against another, for one family against another, for one village against another, these rolling sort of sort of feuds which go on in corporate psyches are hateful to God. And you and I are called to be followers of Jesus Christ and to be peacemakers within this world because judgment does fall. We'll come to Obadiah in a moment. This is a kind of prelim, isn't it? God does judge nations. And he didn't stop when Jesus was born. Not according to the book of Revelation anyway. God does want to save nations. That's the reason he sent Jesus. But God does still judge nations. And if you look particularly at Obadiah you see that, in fact, 
He's not unjust in his, the things he does. Shall not the God of all the earth do justly? Is what the scripture tells us. If God is righteous, then his judgments must be righteous. The thing, the only thing which I can find comforting when we talk about judgments is that I know that when God's judgments are fulfilled, men, nations, and leaders will kneel before him and say, you are just in that. You are God, and I am but a man. And look what we did. You're right, God. But within history, he uses people. I'm not saying, therefore, when we come to Habakkuk, Habakkuk can't understand why God is going to use the Chaldeans to judge Israel. He doesn't understand it. How can you use a people more wicked than we are, Lord, to bring judgment? Well, he uses the movements of history. He doesn't cause them necessarily. But he's sovereign, and he judges nations. And that's... We just have to remember that, because I, I'm, I'm a Brit... I was born here, but I don't think we're a very good nation much of the time. Honestly. And I'm a Gillingham supporter. I have been since I was knee-high to a daffodil, virtually. But it doesn't... But when Gillingham supporters and Millwall supporters, was it Fulham supporters, have a fight and one of the supporters ends up dead... Am I going to leer, gloat? I don't think everything about being a Gillingham supporter is great. You understand? Obadiah can be split, I think, into sort of three sections. There's the opening section where God announces the judgment that is going to come. That's uh, verses 1 to 7, 8. And so on. Then the next block is the reasons for it. And the last block talks about the restoration of Judah. And I'll explain that in a moment. The restoration of Judah. And the very last verse talks about the coming, the kingdom being the Lord's. And I want to hook what I'm going to say from now on, on two verses. Although we'll have a look at the history of the chapter. The first verse is um, verse 10. Because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame. It was a family feud to do with brotherhood, brotherliness, family. And the last verse, which is verse 21, which sounds a bit obscure, but it finishes, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. And when Jesus Christ came in Mark's gospel, um, in Mark chapter 1, we read, Jesus says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. So though Obadiah didn't know it, he was actually pointing to a time which Jesus announced as being coming here, visible, starting in a new way. So I want to hook it on those two things. But first of all, this was a family feud. Jacob and Esau were always hassling with each other. Uh, they were twins. 
when they were born, uh, the scripture says in, in um, Genesis that uh, Esau, the oldest one, was born. He was, uh, he, was, uh, uh, he was born red, so he was called, uh, or was he born hairy and called Esau? Um, and then he ate some red pottage later on, so they called him red, which is Edom. So Esau is the father of the Edomites that are spoken of here. Esau was born first, and we're told in the scriptures that um, Jacob, born second, had his hand on Esau's heel as if to supplant him. So Jacob was called Jacob, which means supplanter. And their mother, Rebekah, was even given a word from the Lord to say that the older will serve the younger. Now, it was a dysfunctional family in many ways. Dysfunction is not a new thing. And God deals and can bless and use people from dysfunctional families. Don't ever think otherwise. Rebecca was a bit of a cheat, a bit sly. She liked Jacob. He was a mummy's boy. Esau was more of a man's man. He'd have been into your export. He was an ex-sports you know, sort of extreme sports. Um, and he was a hunter, and his dad, he was his dad's favourite. Esau was ruled by his belly. He was that kind of man, by his passions. Jacob was, though whether he really was, was a bit more refined and nice, being a mummy's boy. But he was a cheater. And one day when Esau, when they've grown up, Esau comes in and he says, I'm really, really starving. That's a fantastic piece of cooking you've done there, Jacob. Yeah, I, I made it with my own hands. It's a very nice. Yes, it's a very nice. That looks a lovely mess of pottage. Can I have some? Only if you give me your birthright. What's a birthright, says Esau? I'm starving. So... There is deep disrespect within Esau for, for his position, for his birthright. He's just, he lives for the belly. And Jacob tricks him. Ha ha, gotcha. Then later on, as their father is dying, Isaac calls in Esau, his oldest and says, go out into the fields. I want you to, to, to catch an animal, cook me a meal, and bring it in to me, and I will bless you. And Rebecca, crafty Rebecca, hears what she's saying, and thinks, yeah, but I want my favourite to have that blessing. Jacob, do what I tell you. Go out. Look, get me a goat. I'm going I'm to do... A stew, just like your dad really loves. Take it into your dad before Esau gets back and uh, get your brother's blessing. Oh, that's a good idea, thinks Jacob. Where's the morality in that? Um, oh, but, but dad will notice because Esau was a hairy man and I'm a smooth man, mummy. Oh, that's okay, leave it to me. We'll, we'll, put, some, um, we'll put some animal hair on your arms and on your neck and uh, you can wear some of Esau's clothes. So that's what he does. And he goes in and his voice is the voice of Jacob's. But uh, he claims to be Esau. And, and Isaac, the old man, sort of says, come near, boy. And he goes, well, the smell is the smell of Esau. 
Um, come a bit nearer, son. Come a bit nearer. Puts his hand up. Mm, you're a hairy man. You, his eyes have gone, by the way. <laughs> you must be Esau. Okay, my son. I'll give you my blessing. Now, I'm afraid some of you will have to tell me afterwards the deep significance of blessing here. But it was big to them. No sooner had this blessing been given and Jacob's gone out, (laughs) I've done it over him again. Thanks, Mum. Then Esau comes in and, of course, he's absolutely choked up to here. He's sold off his birthright and now he's lost his father's number one blessing. He gets a blessing, but it's not the blessing of the oldest son. And he resolves within his heart to kill Jacob. Vengeance. And Rebekah hears of it and sends Jacob away. Now, that is not a normal family, it seems to me. That is not working the way it should do. But that hostility went on through generations. It became, it got into, into the family psyche of Esau, who became the father of the Edomites, and of Jacob, who became the father of the Israelites. It got into their psyche so that when years and years later, although Jacob, when he came back, he'd been away for 14 years, um, got married, had some children... This was after he'd been sent away, had some children, he came back. He did everything he possibly could to be reconciled to his brother. He humbled himself, over-humbled himself, in order to put things right with his brother. But he didn't change what was going on in here over those centuries. So this, this, this family psyche carried it on from generation to generation. When the Israelites came out of Egypt from their bondage through the desert to go into the promised land, the Edomites refused to let them go through their land. Oh no, this was their brother. But oh no, we don't like you. Go round the long way. And then from the time of King David onwards, several times, either Judah, the descendants of Jacob, sort of made incursions into Edom, the descendants of Esau, or vice versa. And this this juggling for position, this power, the preeminence, went on between them for centuries, all the way down to the time of Obadiah. So, it was unresolved, ancient, feud. Part of my life has been as an association missioner. That's a translocal job, which um, in business terms would be uh, a sort of regional rep for mission amongst the churches. I came across two churches where the minister's And the people loved each other, separated by five miles. But when they tried to do things together, it was very difficult because their two villages from 1800 sometime carried this kind of we don't like them thing. We don't do anything with them. They're the people over there. 
In my first church, in a village in Creek St. Michael at that time, there were two butchers. And the butcher at that end of the village was the free church butcher, and the butcher at that end was the Anglican butcher. And this rivalry was somehow another in the mentality of the people, and it had been there for generations. So it was with Judah and Edom. Now then, to put it in historical context, when we talked about Hosea and we talked about Amos, we're talking about a time when there were two Israeli kingdoms, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. In the year 722, I think it was 732, one of those, I'll look it up later, the Assyrians came down from the north. They were the superpower of the north and they rubbed out Israel. And what they didn't destroy of the people, they took into exile and and sort of spread them out amongst the pagans of other countries that they had conquered. When we're talking about Obadiah, we're talking probably 140, 150 years later. And the superpower has changed. The Assyrians who were in the ascendancy back then have now been overrun by the Babylonians who in two generations' time themselves would be overrun by the Persians. But now it's the Babylonians who are the might and political and military strength in the north. And Obadiah is probably written at that time. Nobody really knows but it's probably written round about 587 before Christ. It would probably be a bit nearer Christ's time than that. Because what has happened is that Judah, for its sins, has now also suffered being overrun by the superpower and has been destroyed Jerusalem has been laid waste now. That happened in 587. The Edomites survived. The Edomites geographically sort of looked down through, through Israel and they're sort of down towards the southeast. They form the southern bit of what is modern day Jordan, if you look at a map. They survived these attacks from Babylon. Now remember, God has judged Judah already. And the Edomites just gloat. They gloat over it. Their territory is largely mountainous, so their their cities, such as they were, were fortresses. If you've ever seen pictures of Petra, Petra in Jordan, which is built into the cliff face, that was built subsequent to this period of time, but their cities were similar to that in the same region of what we now call Jordan. They considered themselves impregnable because their cities were fortresses, natural fortresses. So when they see Jacob being raised to the ground, as it says here, they just gloat.
Because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you will be suffered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. On the day you stood aloof while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. You shouldn't look down on your brother in the day of his misfortune or rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction or boast so much in the day of their trouble. And you shouldn't march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster or look, at, look down on them in their calamity. And you shouldn't seize their wealth and you shouldn't wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives and you shouldn't hand over the survivors. Because you're brothers. That's not how you treat family. And this feud has just gone too far. Enough is enough, says God. And now, you are going to suffer what you laid on them. Your friends are going to desert you. The people who eat your bread are going to betray you. The people you have depended upon are going to come upon you unannounced. And about 20, is it 30 years later, that happened. And they were laid waste. Why did Obadiah write this? What? We, it says, the scripture says, he had a vision from the Lord. So God put it on his heart. But when you have a look at, I think it's Jeremiah chapter 49... Verses 7 to 22. He has an oracle against Edom. And it's remarkable how similar, in some respects, the two oracles are. So that Jeremiah talks about um, their pride of heart in the cleft of the rocks and nesting like eagles. He talks about Envoys going out amongst the nations, declaring that you are going to be destroyed. It talks about the wisdom of, of Teman and, and the grape gatherers and the thieves. If, if grape gatherers came to you, wouldn't they only gather what they needed? If thieves came to you, would they take everything? All these ideas have borrowed, been borrowed almost word for word by Obadiah from Jeremiah. So what has happened? Obadiah has witnessed this destruction of Jerusalem. He has somehow experienced the scorn of Edom, their neighbours. He's recalled what Jeremiah has said. He's bringing it back to the forefront of people's understanding but he is adding what Jeremiah never said. He is seeing what these people have done. And he says, now I understand why God said this through Jeremiah. It's because of your attitude to your brother. It's this stuff that you did. Now I understand. It's because of this that God's going to do that to you. And he adds something else that Jeremiah doesn't add to. He talks about the restoration of the kingdom of of Judah. 
which Jeremiah in his oracle didn't mention. And he mentions this time when justice and righteousness will go out in the words and actions of deliverers from Jerusalem and they would go out into the Edomite area, what was the Edomite area. They would go north, south, east and west, the last paragraphs, if you look at a map and, and, and suss out where all the places are. It's talking about a restoration where the word of God goes out from Jerusalem, where righteousness is, is sort of is re-established, but it's going north, south, east and west. The kingdom of the Lord. So Obadiah adds these bits in. These things came to pass. History. Announced beforehand. Think about it. We're talking about God. Announcing. Being. Well. What's, is it in Water Babies, Mrs. Do As You Would Be Done By? Well, they got done as they did do by. So, let's speed on, shall we? Uh, let's speed on another 500 years to the birth of Jesus. God so loved the world, whatever the nation, Jew and Gentile, God so loved the world that he gave us all this only son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came as a peacemaker, a reconciler. A peacemaker is different from a peacekeeper. God bless all those troops who have to be peacekeepers, patrolling between warring peoples, trying to hold them apart. A peacemaker does something different. And think Jesus. On the one hand, we have a God who hates sin. And the other hand, we have people who have forgotten to love God and live by their own wits. And the peacemaker reaches out to the God who is angry with sin and reaches out and takes the hand of the sinner who is scared to face God and holds both hands, one side and on the other, and he says, Father, I'm standing between you and these people. And what has he done? His arms are stretched out, and where does it take him? It takes him to the sacrifice of a cross. That's what a peacemaker does. He takes in himself the anger and the fury of the one who has been insulted, and he takes upon himself the shame and the disgusting actions and the blame that is on the others, and he takes it in himself, and he brings the two together, and he says, be reconciled in me. That's what Jesus came to do. 
between God and man. But it's what he does between man and man. In Ephesians chapter 2, we have what I think is a beautiful and extraordinary chapter. If Ephesus was a city that was full of idols and idol manufacturers, it was as pagan as you can be in those generations. And we got Paul, who was brought up an absolute strict Jew. The strictest of Jews that you could be. He was proud of it. He said, blameless in the eyes of the law of himself. And Jew and Gentile just do not mix. But Paul realized that his legalism didn't save him. That he was lost without Christ. It was only by faith he could be reconciled. He was no less lost through his legalism than these pagans were through their idolatry. Who could be drawn and reconciled with God through Christ by faith? And so Paul is saying these two extremes, God has made peace by the blood of the cross of Jesus and brought even these religious and ancient and, um, and cultural extremes together in one body in Jesus through faith. Isn't that extraordinary? And you and I are called to be peacemakers. Witnesses of this reconciliation this extraordinary grace of God. Now, I'm so glad I don't know your family lives because I can now look round without in any way feeling any sense of manipulation. <laughs> and I can say that if any of you are going through these feuds, then the scripture says, in as much as it lies within you, live peaceably with all men. If you've got a family feud or an interdepartmental feud in the office, if you've got, I don't know, a street by street feud, if you've got, if you're a Bristol City supporter and you've got a feud with a Bristol Rovers supporter, or you're gloating at the moment because you're up there and they're down there and Gillingham beat them 4 0, but don't gloat, Dave. Sorry, Bristol City, Bristol Rovers supporters, but I'm very happy for us. But gloating, you see how easy it is. How very easy it is. And inasmuch as it lies in us, we're to live peaceably with all men. And it's quite shocking, really, that in Galatians, Paul says this, <clears throat> the acts of the sinful nature are obvious, Sexual immorality, impurity, yeah, we'll go with that. Debauchery, yeah, we'll go with that. Idolatry and witchcraft, yeah, we'll run with that. Hatred, mm -hmm. discord, mm -hmm. jealousy, fits of rage, uh -uh. selfish ambition, dissensions, 
factions? Or can't we just stick with the sexual immorality, debauchery and witchcraft? Can't we just stick with them? Not according to the scripture. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God, says the apostle. How good and precious it is when brethren dwell together in unity. Inasmuch as it lies within you, live peaceably with all men. You can't help it if because of some family feud, people are always getting at you. You can help it if you get back. You understand? The kingdom that is come, that is the kingdom of reconciliation, which goes out from Jerusalem to all nations, is of reconciliation and of righteousness. Unity in the spirit of Jesus. If you've been caught up in any of this stuff, then the word to remember is the word repent, which, I've said this before, shouted on banners, repent, is a bitter and a hard word. But spoken by Jesus, repent therefore and believe the good news, that's different, isn't it? Isn't it a way out of the spiral of feuding? Isn't it a way out and a way back? God, I got really caught up in this. I've been part of it. I'm so sorry. I gloated over auntie. I was so, actually, God, I was quite pleased when so-and-so copped it. Please forgive me. I'm going to change my attitude from now on. I'm going to be different, Lord. Your spirit in me. I've been crucified with Christ, so now by faith, your spirit in me. I'm going to be different. And I'm trusting you. This is a walk of faith, not of my effort, Lord. That's how it works. We walk by faith. Put no reliance on our efforts. We trust the word of God. And we change our minds and our attitudes. Now, other people in your particular feud, if you're in one, may not change their minds or attitudes, but sure as eggs is eggs, your change will make a big difference over time. And then, instead of, um, instead of pouring coals on people, because your own attitude has changed, perhaps you send them a Christmas card for the first time for 20 years. Whew. That's going to make them stop and think, isn't it? Oh, you ring them up and say, I heard auntie was ill. I'm sorry I haven't inquired before. How is she? We've been praying for her. So even if other people don't change, the call of God is upon my life to be the one who changes. And my change may influence others. Dee will tell you that I've not been the best husband in the world. And at times I've thought she was not the best wife in the world. And I've often, especially in the early days, prayed that God would change her. 
But I noticed the biggest changes that took place in her were when he answered her prayers and perhaps and perhaps and made changes in me. And when I changed, suddenly she seemed different. Was it me all the time? <laughs> so we're called to live peaceably with all people. And that psalm, which was rewritten to include sisters, also talked about perfume. But in Psalm 133, isn't it? What is mentioned is the oil poured down upon Aaron's head, which then dribbles down onto his beard and onto his clothes, which sounds a bit messy. Except, of course, that oil represents the blessing, the spirit of God. When brethren dwell together in unity, there the Lord commands the blessing, as with that oil dribbling down the priest. And as with that dew on Mount Hermon watering the crops, there the Lord commands his blessing. So I leave it with you. Jesus is a wonderful saviour. You could, you may be sitting here, I hope you're not, but one or other of you may be sitting here feeling very heavy, even guilty or ashamed right now. Remember, God loved the world so much. And Jesus has taken judgment into himself and carried yours. And before you go out here, you could just know that. You can know that. Not by going like that, but being honest with God and just asking him to touch your life by his spirit. And if God can't do that, from now on, or you believe he can't, from now on, ignore every word I ever preach again. Because I'm talking about a different God from the one you believe in. I'm talking about the living God. The Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who says, call to me and I will answer you. Show you great and mighty things you haven't known. Who says he is able to do abundantly above all that you even ask or think. And that by the power already at work within you. God can do it. Wants to do it, actually. But it's not down to the minister or the leaders of the church to do it for you. You have to stand up before God for yourself and trust him. Oh, Lord, we want to be a happy church. <laughs> Fill us with the joy of your salvation. Amen.